0: Well, good morning, Keystone Church. Come on, I know it's an early service, but you can do better than that. I say good morning, Keystone Church. Awesome. My name is Mac. As your, as Pastor Keith said, I'm from Auburn, Alabama. Don't hold that against me. Moved there from Atlanta. Is Atlanta a more acceptable city than Auburn? Is that all right? If you got a Bible this morning, if you'll open up with me to First Kings chapter 18. First Kings chapter eighteen. Revival really does change everything. And so I remember, for me, when I met Life Action in 2011, I was uh, living in Memphis, Tennessee at the time, and and uh, I was going to church. Uh, a church about close to 1,500 people, and my pastor had been asking me for 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 weeks if I was if I was coming, and finally pulled me in his office one day and said, "Mac, you, are you coming to this to to this Life Action re- revival that we have?" Uh, scheduled and I, and and listen my pastor was a lot a lot more crazy than your pastors are uh we we had a 15 day meeting scheduled two weeks right and and uh, and I said doc I'll be honest with you I don't I don't have enough lost friends to to bring for 15 days I don't really know what that's all about you see cuz for me I grew up in the bible belt of the south and revival was this this thing that we did mainly in the hot months of the summer where we put a tent outside and we all sweat for Jesus. You know what I'm talking about? Where, where we just, we, we threw a tent out and we all went out there and so we invited some guest preacher to come and, and we would bring all of our lost friends, right, to do the, to allow this guest preacher to do something that we didn't have uh, the, the courage to do all along, right? And to try to share the gospel with all our friends and hopefully a lot of people get saved. And that's kind of what revival had always been to me. And so when, when my pastor goes, hey, uh, we've got this thing uh, coming, these, these people are coming, are, 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 you, are you coming? I said, doc, I don't, I don't have enough lost friends to bring for all these days because in reality, for me, revival was something for lost people. But if we really take a look at the word revival, I think what we'll begin to understand is that revival is not at all actually for lost people, right? Are there any teachers in the room? Any teachers? I'm, there's always a few teachers, right? So this is, a, you guys can help me out, right? I'm not, uh, I'm not the greatest at this, but if you take the word revival, the prefix of the word revival is what? Re, which means to, which means what? What does that mean? What? Yeah. To do again. Okay, just for everybody else except for, except for you, sir, just a special dispensation this morning. You can talk in church this morning. Next week, you can go back to doing whatever you normally do. But you're exactly right, to do again. That's exactly right. Thank you for participating this morning. To do again. So we've got to do again. And then vival comes from the root word, or yeah, vival comes from the word what? Which means what? Vival means what? To live, right? Okay, so to live or, or, or life, right? So, so we have to do again life, right? So let me ask you a question. Spiritually speaking, can a lost person do again life? Spiritually, I mean I'm just asking the question. You guys can answer. You can say yes or no. I, I'm just asking the question. Can a lost person do again life? Yes or no? No, why? They never had life in the first place. So if we take the word revival, it actually means to do again life. Therefore, when we look at the when we look at this concept of revival, it's 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 as you saw in the in the video. There, it's not something uh, that 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 for for us is is just a time when, when we can uh, just bring all of our lost friends and hoping that the evangelistic message reaches them. Now, please hear me. Uh, evangelism is absolutely a byproduct of revival, but revival is for us. Revival is for the church. It's it's that we would come back to our first love, and so for me, I had it, I had it all, uh, I had it all confused, I had it all messed up, and, and, and so I told I told my pastor said Doc, I don't know, and and you got to understand, I was one of the skeptical people, I was one of the people like some of you are, like man, what are we going to do for two weeks, right, like like what are we going to do, and I remember I had an office in the in the um, the second floor of my church and I could walk out of my office and walk down to the to the balcony of of our worship center and and so uh, I remember walking down there and I I would sit by myself up there just just Confused as to why these these people were there, and just really skeptical of who these people were. Because you, you got to understand, when I got there on the first Sunday morning, I'd kind of forgotten that, that we were going to have this thing because we had a we had a guy come in and do a pre-summit much like this. And but that was eight weeks away. I mean, I mean, this summit that's coming to your church is eight weeks from today, and so it's a lot, a lot of time to forget, right? And so I, I remember coming in that first Sunday morning into the church and. I pulled in and 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 the front of the parking lot was full and and I've got an office like I said I had an office in the back of in the back of the upstairs of, of my church and it was perfect because I could park by the back door right to to the church right you guys got to follow me here I could park by the back door go right up the stairs right up to my office right it was perfect right and nobody ever parked like in the back of the church, right? Nobody wanted to park back there. So it was perfect for me. So I come pulling into church, and every Sunday morning I would park in the same spot because I'd go to my office and, and, and try to get a little stuff done, maybe try to get some reading done uh, before uh, church on, on Sunday morning. And, and so I'd, I'd pull in and, and, and park and, and go straight into my office. It was, it was great. Didn't have to talk to anybody. It was awesome, right? I'm an introvert, in case you can't tell, but uh so I would pull in and and I would uh and and I was driving past a lot of cars which normally weren't there that early, and as I get to the back of the church, you will not believe what I found. Oh, they weren't only parked in my spot. I had people living in my parking spot, right? You say back, I don't understand. You see, eight weeks from today, here's what you'll find. Here's what you'll find as you come on the parking lot. You see, there's, there's a, they, they come with an 18-wheeler, right? That's kind of weird, right? They come with a bus. That's also a little weird. And then they come with two trailers, one 55-foot fifth-wheel trailer and one a little smaller trailer. At the time, the, the team that was traveling to my church had two 55-foot fifth-wheel trailers, and they were literally living in my parking spot. So some of you think it's bad when somebody just parks there. Try, try not be able to park there for three weeks, right? Somebody living in your park? I mean, it's just ridiculous. That's what I, that was my attitude, right? That's what I thought. And so I go up to my office, and of course, I've got this attitude, like, who are these gypsies, and what are they doing in my church, right? That was kind of the thought that I had, right? And, and I, I didn't know the circus was coming to town. And all these thoughts is, is what I had as I sat looking skeptically upon what was what well, was happening there at my church. But here's what I began to see as the days went on, is that actually these people weren't weren't actually gypsies at all. They were actually there to, to preach the word, right? And the word was preached every night. And then there's practical application given every night. And when I began to watch, as I sat there night after night, as I began to watch, lives begin to be changed. There, there came a point in time in the services there that we, we met where people got to stand up and share about what was, what was happening in their life. I heard a... One of my, one of the, the deacons in my church stood up and said, hey, you guys know that some of you know that I, I, I lost, uh, lost my job about three years ago. Many of you prayed for me about that and whatever, and he had since moved on to another job. He said, but what you didn't know is that during that time, the first thing that I began to do was stop tithing. Three years ago, first thing I began to do was stop tithing. He said, God's conv- so convicted in my heart this week that, uh, that i 've been stealing from him in the last three years, and I made a commitment to make restitution to pay back what I'll, what i have stolen from God over the last three years now some of you are sitting out here going man that's pretty that 's pretty radical uh, Then a pastor stood up and said said this he said hey, uh, I just need to to confess that that I, I was just convicted this week that that um, I was so convicted that I took my, my degree back to the local seminary there, uh, and, and I took it back to the professor that, that I had my last class in, and, and I just confessed to him that I cheated on the final. Didn't deserve this. And, and some of you are going, man, that, that's kind of radical. But but in all actuality, is that not the type of life that Scripture calls us to live every single day? And, and so what happened to me in, in those days was, man, I was just my eyes were open to this idea that, that revival was actually for believers. Revival was actually for us. Revival was actually calling us back to our first love. Revival was actually a, a recognition of what truly mattered in life and a complete commitment to it. That's what revival is all about. You see, because I just believe that, that as we look around the world today and we hear so much talk about how, how, how fallen the world is and how, how bad the world is and, and, and how much wrath and judgment God's going to bring upon the world, and, and I look at all that, and, and here's what the conclusion that I come to, that if we, as Bible-believing uh, followers of Christ, would actually live out the life that's written for us in Scripture, then maybe just maybe we wouldn't have the problems that we have. Right, you know what? You know what he says in the scripture that true and authentic faith is taking care of the orphans and the widows. That's what he. That's what he claims that that, that authentic faith actually is. They give the orphans and the widows. Do you know that there's over that there's over five hundred thousand orphans in the U.S. today? Meanwhile, there's over one million churches. That is, if if one person. In every other church decided they were going to adopt an orphan, we would eradicate the orphan epidemic that's happening in America today. and that's what he says that that's what he says that the true and undefiled religion is, right? But that's just radical. That's just crazy. Now, oh we're, we would actually confess our sins one to another. oh we would we would actually take care of the orphans and the widows, oh, that we would actually do that, that we would literally do those things. And what became evident to me over these days is the guys who were bringing the messages night after night weren't saying anything that I hadn't heard preached before. But it was this the realization that this is actually the life that Christ is calling me to. That it's not just a, a, a book that we read on Sundays and maybe a couple times a week in the mornings and then go about our everyday life and hope that it can mean something to us. But instead that, that, this, that the Bible and the, the relationship that we have with the Lord would actually be the filter through which we live our life every single day. I ended up meeting a lot of the, a lot of the, the, the life action team there. We were playing basketball one night. Our, we had a, a room much like this that we would set up goals in and, and, uh, and play basketball and uh, I ended up meeting them and... I ended up uh, going on the road with this team, leaving, leaving everything. that I, I'd moved from Atlanta to Memphis, forsaking everything in my life for a call to ministry. And I was traveling and speaking all across the country. And God put a halt to that in my life, almost like the story of Abraham and Isaac. And I ended up traveling with them for, for a couple of years. And the things that I saw all over the country, the lives that I saw changed all over the country were it was phenomenal to watch what God is able to do when we have a willing spirit that just says, God, whatever you want from me. Because after all, when we, when we said yes to Jesus as the Lord and Savior of our life, basically what we were saying to God is, here's a blank slate, and I'm just going to sign my name at the bottom. And somewhere along the way, we, we've lost our first love and that 's what these days are all about is it 's all about us beginning to refocus, beginning to retool our, our our vision on what actually matters in life and I began to watch what happened in churches. I began to watch people come forward and say, hey, listen uh, you guys don 't understand this, but but what actually happened in our it was was actually happening in our life. You guys think we have it all together. We actually had divorce papers that we were actually about to sign before this week started, and now we've ripped up these divorce papers as God has just done a work in our marriage this week. I watched a, a guy confess to, 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 this, to, to the idea of, uh, of, of, of stealing, and he had, he, had stolen, he had stolen a large sum of money, but he knew that he might go to jail for it, but it, 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 wouldn't, it wouldn't matter because for him, that, that he realized that there was something standing between his relationship with him and God. And he had to confess this. Why? Because it's what Scripture says. And I watched all these lives begin to transform. And what I begin to understand is that is that what what God is calling us to is a life that seems on the surface to us radical. But when we dive into Scripture, what we begin to understand is that it's just a that's just a life of of normal believerhood, of normal fellowship of. Of who God has asked us to be, and so I could tell you story after story after story of what God had done in the days, what I've seen Him do on the road as I traveled for a couple years with the team. But uh, I would rather you hear a story from a, a couple who Life Action had been to their church a couple of times, and 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 I hope what you hear in their story is not that Life Action pulled up with an eighteen wheeler full of suitcases that were packed full of revival, and they just unpacked these suitcases, and revival came. That's not actually at all what happens. They don't have any secret suitcases. They don't have any, Any. there's no, there's no magic uh, formula. There's no, it's just us meeting together with God, and through a series of, uh, of of days of them seeking God's face together, their life was completely transformed, and so I'd love for you to hear uh, from Joel and Melanie Dewey. They're here with us this morning. I want you to give it up for them as they come and and share a little bit of their story. Good
1: morning. Good morning. We are Joel and Melanie Dewey. We are from Eastern Pennsylvania, about two hours north and east of here. And uh, we have a, a story that starts off pretty ugly. And uh, by God's grace, turns out beautiful. So Melanie's going to start.
2: Morning. So we, much like you today, uh, were sitting at a pre-summit about six and a half years ago. Um, just to give you a little background on us, uh, both of us were, uh, grew up in Christian homes. Uh, both of us were born and raised in the church, um, Sunday school youth group the whole way through. Um, we met in high school. And... Um, At the point in our lives where uh, Life Action had come to our church, we had been through a period of time where the church we grew up in, uh, some things happened there, and as a result, we wound up bouncing church to church to find a a good fit for us and our family. Um, It led to um, just kind of not being as connected and and, uh, being involved as we had once been, and over time, you know, we had small children and just lots of things going on in your life like you have when you have small children. And um, I was just hungry for fellowship, had seemed to have lost that somewhere along the way. And so the church that we were attending, uh, Calvary Baptist in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, um, had Life Action coming for about, I think it was the fourth or fifth time that they were coming. Um, And it was our first experience with it. We'd been attending Calvary Baptist for about six months when the pre-summit came Uh, We were there purely because my in-laws were there, and I thought if I had fellowship with no one else, at least I had some family there. Uh, When the pre-summit came, I sat in the congregation, and Joel was in Utah on a ski trip. Um, So we listened to the the pre-summit, had never, ever heard of Life Action before, didn't know what to expect, Um, but our summit was 11 days, and I thought, surely if we are here for 11 days, I will get fellowship and get to meet people. Uh, so during the pre-summit, the, um, the speaker spoke, and someone came and shared their testimony. He shared how, um, you know, what God had done during that time there, and that his wife, after the first night, wanted to talk with him, and uh, he said, you know, he was a little worried about that, but he had some secrets that he had that he was going to the grave with. And uh, through what God did in their lives, his wife shared um, being unfaithful, and he, in turn, shared that he had been in a relationship with someone else as well, and that what God did in their lives that week, that they were their marriage had been stronger than ever before. And, you know, I sat, I listened to the testimony, thought, wow, isn't that really cool? But, you know, 11 days of um, meeting together would surely bring fellowship, and, and that's what I was excited about in that pre-summit not thinking that I myself needed to be revived at all. Um, our kids were in Christian school. We were in church Sundays, and, and uh, things were pretty good. We, we pretty much had some control in our lives.
1: So I came back from uh, skiing out west, and this is the story that she shared with me. And um, the testimony that she shared with me, I said, Wow, you know, if this is what Life actions about, I want nothing to do with it. So, um, you know, eight weeks went by. We fast forward to the summit. So you're October 21st. And, um, so that morning, my son woke up about five in the morning with a, I like a nasty cough, like kind of the one you can't bring him to the nursery or, you know, to kids church with, you know, it's just so nasty, just about gagging and coughing. And I thought, yeah, this is my way out, you know, five in the morning. I said, I'll, I'll stay home with him. You know, I'll watch him and you can go because you want fellowship, you know? So, uh, so anyway, she goes. Well, I'll give him this. Uh, this she had this homeopathic beads or whatever they were put on his tongue and stuff. Probably some of you you, you know what that is, and like he, miraculously, two hours later, he's cured. And so I remember that morning, I sat on the edge of the bed and I said, "Lord, go easy on me," because I had been under such deep conviction. The weeks before, I could hardly sit still in church at the end of the sermon. So that morning comes, we go, and we drove separate. That was always my out at church. I always drove separate because on Sunday afternoons, what I would do is I would go off and do something. I'd either go to the gym or I'd go fly fishing or whatever. And this day, I had, had planned on going fly fishing after church. And what I would do is I would do it right away while she was fellowshipping and you know get it kind of over, and then we'd divide and conquer, and we'd meet in the afternoon back with the family. So that was my plan. So um, we went to uh, the service. Service starts. And the, um, the revivalist started by asking the congregation, like, you know, how many of you believe that God is going to judge this nation for the wickedness? You know, raise your hands. And, and it was pretty, a large majority of the people. And, and then, you know, it got down to questions like, how many of you are specifically doing something to prepare for God's judgment? And there were only a few hands. And, and I thought, wow, I got through the participation part of this revival, so I'm all right. You know, I'm going to do good. And, and then the sermon went, and then the end of the sermon came. And what he asked for is all the men of the church to come forward and pray for themselves, for their family, for their church, and their country for a revival. And man, like that was something that I really wanted to do, but I couldn't do it. See, for the last 10 years of my life, I had passed the communion plate because there was something going on in my life that I didn't want her to know about. But I knew I couldn't I couldn't take communion. I was scared to death. You know, my, my family, half of my family went to Lancaster Bible College. I knew the word. So I was scared to death to cross that line. And, and when the, when he asked the men to come forward and, and pray, I wanted to go too. I wanted that fellowship again that I once had when I was younger. But I couldn't go. I couldn't fake it with the Lord. So now this prayer is going on. And um, during this prayer, I, I kind of have, I got Satan on one side saying, Joel, you know, in three minutes, you're, you're going to be out of here. You're going to go fly fishing, and it's, it's all going to be good. And you, you, I have a job in New York City that k- takes me away. So I got an alibi to stay away from life action. I don't have to come back after today. But on the other hand, it was like God was on the other side saying, Joel, listen, today is the day. Don't harden your hearts. You know, in Hebrews, it talks about the Israelites, how they harden their hearts. And, and they never went into the rest that God had planned. You know, they were judged. And to me, that moment was a defining moment in my life. And, and for God to say, Joel, today is your day. If you resist me today, there's never going to be conviction like this again. In fear, God broke me. Now the prayer is over, and Melanie has no idea. She looked at me as if this, she didn't say, but she was looking at me like, why did my godly husband, as she thought, not go forward? So I said, honey, you need to take the kids to your mom and dad's, and you need to come and meet me at the stream. So she came to the stream, and at the stream, I confessed to my wife that I had been living a double life, that I had been committing adultery with another woman for more than 10 years. She had no idea. So through hours of weeping and crying and her asking questions and God giving me the grace to answer honestly honestly, Three or four hours later, she said, I love you, I've always loved you, and I forgive you.
2: So that wasn't my expectation of what was going to happen at this revival, um, because I didn't think I needed it, but during that time, that afternoon, as my world was falling completely apart, somehow God's grace was just poured out on me, and some way I understood this fear that he told me that he had of being honest even though he wanted to be he feared the loss and God just reminded me that I had some secrets of my own and they had to do more with our finances and um, I am the banker in the family so the checkbook falls on me by default and so I am a peacemaker, I guess. I, I like to avoid confrontation and arguments, and so I would try to maintain the lifestyle of of living that we had grown accustomed to and um, just kind of put it all together and make it all work, and so um, I knew that there would be times where he would ask a question about, you know, credit card balances, and I'd have totally changed the subject because I didn't want to have an argument, and so that by some way helped me understand this fear of, um, you know, confession. Um, and I would always think that I would be able to take care of it on my own. I'd figure it out. I'd, I'd do something. And by the time, you know, we'd have this conversation, I'd have it taken care of, but it never, ever happened. And so I was able that afternoon to just share that. And, um, and amazingly, God just worked through us and, Um, In the days that came for the revival, um, 11 days, much, Joel said he worked in New York, and I I fully expected that we'd be there Sunday, maybe Wednesday night, maybe the following Sunday, Um, but we'd have, you know, he'd have reasons with time of why we couldn't make it to the other services, and God was just so gracious to us in that week and we were at every single service, every moment of every single one, and he just worked in such a mighty way through us that week. Um, at the end of the 11 days, I remember talking to the lead revivalist and said, I don't understand how what I've seen other people go through in years and maybe not resolve we've gone through in days, and the Holy Spirit was just so gracious in working through us. Um, I know the day that they did the final service and were packing up to leave, I was terrified. And we shared this last night. And um, the terror was that it would be like a New Year's resolution where you say, I'm going to stop eating garbage food. And by January 15th, you're back in it. And so there was this fear inside of me that this lay action team was going to pack up and move away. And within, you know, a few weeks to months, we were just going to be right back to where we were and being apathetic and and uh doing things on our own but God is gracious and the um re- repentance and revival was genuine and um he's just been continuing to work through us
1: so we gladly share our story to bring hope to those that need hope and some of you may be sitting here in the same spot that I was in whether it's my story or a different story and you say man I can't come to that I'm begging you to come and then others of you are sitting here saying like I don't think I really need it please come let God do his thing
0: you guys so much you know whether it be a story that I shared or the story that was just shared before you I think I hope that you can see that for us that when we take time to 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 truly seek the face of God in our life it, it does result in defining moments I love that Joel called it a defining moment because I think we can look through Scripture and see one common theme and one common thread every time we see something in a defining moment. So if you've got a Bible and you're with me right here in 1 Kings chapter 18, let's dive deep into, into what we want to say. We've got to do it in a hurry this morning. Check this out because I think what we see in 1 Kings 18 is we see an outline for us of what it looks like to be authentic believers, authentic believers. And I think that that authenticity is what was achieved in their relationship as they as they met with met with God in a real way, authenticity is what is, is, what is was gained in their relationship and their relationship, their horizontal relationship and their uh, vertical relationship. That is a relationship with, with the Lord and with each other. And I think that every story that I could share with you about what God has done with somebody and in and in somebody's life uh, would, would would show you that. That, um, that, that for them, it's, it, the story is defined by authenticity. And so we see that right here in First Kings chapter 18, as we look at uh, three, I want to give you three quickly this morning, three characteristics, three things that happen to us. As, as, if, as if we call ourselves authentic believers, it would be defined three uh, ways. And we see here Elijah and the prophets of Baal. You guys, some of you are very familiar with this story. Let me take you back to First Kings chapter 17 and just kind of give you some background, which becomes important in our story in chapter 18, for you to understand what's going on here uh, with the prophet Elijah. And so we see that that Elijah right he was he was sent by the Lord it says this right here in verse uh, chapter 17 verse 1 as the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word why because they had uh, because they had done evil and in fact Ahab had done evil twice it says it was listed he's listed twice as doing evil in chapter 16 very very clearly, and so God is sending his judgment upon his people, and he's, he's sending the prophet Elijah to tell them that there will be no rain until he speaks again, so picture this, no rain until he speaks again, and so he tells Elijah to do that, and so Elijah goes, and he tells he tells the king uh, Ahab, he says, hey, listen, here's the deal, there's not going to be any rain, there's going to be drought upon the earth for the evil that you have done, right, for the evil that you've done, he says, uh, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word and 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 so he did that and he goes okay God what now and God says okay now you need to run for your life right you need to run for your life why because he's just told Ahab that there's not going to be any dew or rain and what's going to happen when there is no when there is no precipitation upon the earth who are they going to be looking for again special dispensation just this morning you can talk in church who are they going to be looking for Elijah, they're going to be looking for Elijah, the guy who told them that there was not going to be any, any water, any rain, right? And, so, and so, so he goes, okay, God, I've done what you asked me to do. Now what do I need to do? He says, now you need to run for your life. He said, okay, where will I go? He said, hey, go to this brook, the brook of Cherith, and there I will I will, send you, uh, I will send you food, right? I'll send the ravens to feed you. So Ray Lewis is just going to come with some Chick-fil-A, right, in the morning and at night, right? That's obviously not what he's talking about, right? He feeds him with, with birds twice a day. Now listen, you go back, why is that significant? Because twice a day, in my study of scripture, the, the time that God has fed people with birds of the air, he didn't, he didn't do it twice. But he does for Elijah right here, and you go, Mac, why is that important? Because what you're going to see is that God is building great history with Elijah, proving to Elijah that he can be trusted. And so he so he does that, so he he, he lays there, he hides in the brook, and he drinks the brook, and then guess what happens as he gets fed, and, 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 he, and he's drinking, and he's lying there, and, and then there's no rain upon the earth, guess what happens to the brook? What happens to it? It dries up, absolutely. Of course it dries up, right? So it dries up, and so he goes, okay, God, where am I going to go now? And he said, okay, now you need to go down to the widow's house. She's going to have nothing. She's not going to have any flour or any oil, but here's what you need to do. You need to tell her to make you a meal. Make you a meal first. And then she's going to feed herself and her son. So he goes to this, finds this this widow's house. Can you imagine knocking on doors? Are you the, No, no, not you. Okay. And and so he goes to the widow's house, right? And does the same thing. Or does exactly what God asked him to do. Feed me. Well, I don't have anything. I got only a, a jar of, of each left. Well, well just, just make it for me and it will not run out until the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And guess what happened? Every single day she went to the jar of flour and to the jug of oil and they had not run to, ran out. Why? Because God was again building great history with Elijah. And then the, the son dies, and so the woman comes to him and says, hey, the, the son dies. Is that why you were here to bring calamity upon my family, to bring death upon this household? Is that why you were here? And he said, absolutely not. And he scooped the son up, took him to the upper chamber, laid down, knelt down, prayed, and said, God, uh, listen, I just, uh, I, I just need your work of you right here. And here's what he says. He says, oh, Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. Notice what he said, let the, let the child's life, Come into him again. May he be revived is what he's saying, right? We defined that earlier. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. Notice what it says. The Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. So here's what I'm saying. I'm not not here this morning to debate some theological concept with you about prayer. Does it change God's mind? Does it change things? Whatever. Here's what I know. Elijah prayed, the Bible tells us that God listened, and the child was revived. And so hear me say this this morning, for the next eight weeks, the only thing, if you can't do anything to prepare for this, for this summit to be here, if you go, I don't have any money, I don't have any cars, you can't stay in my house, you can't do anything, here's what I would challenge you to do over the next eight weeks, may you find yourself praying. Why? Because the Lord listened and the child was revived. And so may it be said of you that the next eight weeks, that the way you've been preparing for, for what God is going to do in your midst eight weeks, beginning eight weeks from today, maybe you'll just begin praying. Because here's been our prayer for years. Now We know we don't bring revival. Our prayer has been, God, may you begin a work in a church that we just get to come and participate in, that it's just part of what, what happens. May you begin that before we ever get there. And so Elijah prayed, and and the the life of the child was returned to him again, and so then God sent him out to confront Ahab about what he had done. Notice God building great history with Elijah. That becomes important in just a second. And so Elijah, in verse number 20 of chapter 18, this is where we're gonna dive deep into for a few minutes this morning. Check this out. So he goes to Ahab, He, 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 he and he, he finds Ahab. There's a lot more to that story in the, in the verses we skipped right there, but check this out, right here in verse number 20. So Ahab sent sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Because he met him in 17. In verse 17 he says, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And here's, here's what Elijah says to the king who's been looking for him to kill him. Here's what he says to him. He says, uh, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, you and your father's house. W- what's the deal with his father's house? His father Omri actually did evil inside the of the Lord also? So you and your father's house, you have troubled Israel. You have brought this drought. You brought, which by the way lasted a little over three years. And so he says, the reason that you that you you brought drought here, the reason you've sent out your your men to find water for the cattle who are dying, the reason for all that is you. You brought calamity here. Why? When you turned your back on God. When you chose that you desired to worship other gods, specifically the gods of Baal, which basically, bottom line, in 2018, here's the way we could define the gods of Baal. Whatever you want. You wanted fire, they called out to the god of fire. You wanted rain, you called out to the god of rain. You wanted lightning, you called out to the god of light. Whatever you wanted, that's what they called out to. Does that sound familiar today? Sure, we don't call them Baal, but we call out to the god of our self-satisfaction. The God of whatever we want. We don't don't call out to it. We just go do it, right? We go get whatever we want. We go go do whatever we want to do. We buy whatever we want to buy. We're entertained by whatever we want to be entertained by. And so what Elijah says to him is it's you. You've done that. And then he says this. Now, therefore, go and gather all the Israel, Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, And meet me there. And so that's what he does in verse 20. So Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Verse 21. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And so here's the first challenge that he makes to us this morning as we dive deep into this passage. Here's the first challenge he makes. As authentic believers, the first point we need to understand this, this morning is authentic believers, we're confronted with a choice. As authentic believers, if you and I are going to call ourselves authentic, born-again believers in Jesus Christ, we are confronted with a choice, not just weekly, not just monthly, but daily. And by the hour, we are confronted with a choice. Who are we going to serve? Are we going to serve God, or are we going to serve ourselves? Sure, we're not praying to a God of Baals. We would never do that, right? We, we come to Keystone Church. Why would we ever pray to anybody else? But, but do we not self-serve? Do we not, do we not serve ourselves in almost everything that we do? listen, I hope you're listening this morning because I'm preaching to myself. And, and so that's what he says to them. He goes, because he goes, they would say they believed in God, but then, but then when it came to some need that they had in their life, they would pray to some other God. And we do the exact same thing just under different semantics. We would say we believe in God, but when it comes to something we need, man, we're just gonna go get it. We're just gonna go do it. We're just gonna go watch it, whatever it is. And, and so what he says to them is he says, how long are you going to go limping between two different opinions? If God is God, then follow him. But if Baal, then you should follow him. It reminds me of a story of my grandmother growing up. you got to understand, my grandmother was a hero of my faith. The reason that I believe today, hero of my faith. I mean, just the godliest woman. She, I, she, was, uh, she was a Methodist, but I called her a Baptist. right? You know how Baptists pray forever? You know what I'm talking about? You guys you guys have Baptist friends? Okay. I'm it's okay. I'm talking about my people. It's cool. You guys can you guys can can laugh at that, right? you know, you know? No? Okay. Just me. All right. But Baptists, they pray forever, right? So my, my grandmother was was Methodist, but but here's the thing. When I would, when I was little and I would stay with my grandmother, we would do a devotion every night, and then she would pray. And I always heard her say, uh God, but I never heard her say Amen because I was always asleep before she got to the end of her prayer. So I called her, you know, Methodist and, and Baptist, and so Baptist is kind of what I called her. And so uh, that's what she did. She, but she was the hero of my faith, man. She was the first example of what a godly woman uh, was to look like in my life, it, and what what a Christ follower, what it meant to actually follow Jesus. And I, I remember. In 2009, my grandmother died, and my mom asked me to do her funeral. And it was, it was one of the hardest but, but most glorious things I've ever done in my life. And, and, and so I remember I, started, I got with my brother and started thinking about stories about my grandmother. And, and I was reminded uh, when I, in 2009 when I was uh, preparing for her funeral of, this, of the story of the time that, that my grandmother made the best fried chicken in the planet right? Like, I'm from the South. You got to understand, man, fried chicken is king. You know what I'm saying? And so, like, like I, fried chicken is, is where it's at. And my grandmother made the best fried Who thinks they make great fried chicken? Does anybody think they make good fried chicken? Yeah, you're wise, right? You're wise this morning. You, uh, yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, you don't because my grandmother does. And so, it's cool. Uh, but, but she made great fried chicken. And I'm talking about it. wasn't like deep fried. It was like lightly pan fried, you know, where you got to flip it all the time. You got to stand over it. Yeah? Anybody? Okay, anyway. It was awesome. And so she would do that, and almost every Sunday, we lived like 10 minutes away from her, we would go up there. Well, in high school, I started going to a different church than my parents, right? And, and so that, what that means, is my church got out a little bit earlier than my, than my parents' church did. And so I would drive back home, meet my parents when they got there, and then we would go to my grandmother's uh, house for uh, lunch and so one particular Sunday I got out of church and I hadn't eaten breakfast that morning and I was driving back home and I started thinking about how hungry I am and I go oh, I can't I can't do that because we're going to Mama Sarah's that's what we called her are going to Mama Sarah's for lunch and then I our thinking about Mama Sarah and how much she loved uh, to go to McDonald's with me and get two apple pies and a sweet tea right we used to do that all the time when I was 13 I used to convince her to let me drive to McDonald's and it was awesome but anyway I'm sorry and uh and, and it was it was great. So we would do that often. That was kind of our thing to do. And so I started thinking about that. And I happened to pass a McDonald's on the way home. And I was like, I'm just going to pull in and get two apple pies and a sweet tea. And you will not believe what they put in my bag. Somehow I ended up with a ten piece chicken McNugget and a McChicken sandwich and two apple pies and a sweet tea. I mean, it's crazy. Or I ordered it, one or the other. But <laughs> I was hungry, right? So I just I just I was. And I knew I had to throw down that food before I got home because I would get in trouble for what What would my mom say to me? You're going to ruin your dinner, right? Yeah, of course. Right. Everybody's mom said that. And so so I knew I had to hurry up and eat it before I got home. And so I did. And we, we, we got in the car and we, we drove up to my grandmother's house. And my grandmother had a garden in the back that, that she would leave church early. She, she, her church was like a block away from her house. And she'd leave church early. She'd walk home. She'd walk by her garden pick the, the fresh vegetables for the day, come in, and she'd start cooking lunch. It was awesome. And so we get out of the car, and you could just smell the fried chicken outside. I mean, it was an amazing aroma, right? And we go inside, and I see her, and she knew that I loved the chicken wings. They didn't have much chicken, but it had a lot of breading, and she knew I loved that. And so she would always save me the wings, and she's over there flipping the last wing for me there, and she fixed our plate, and, and she set it down there, and she knew I always loved to sit next to her, and, and she fixed my plate with, my favorite fresh vegetable, macaroni and cheese, and, uh, and, and put that down next to, next to her plate. And we were sitting there eating lunch and just talking. And, and I wasn't really eating much. I'm eating a little bit of the chicken and a little bit of the mac and cheese. And, and she goes, well, honey, is it not any good today? I said, oh, no, Mama sir, you know it's good. It's always good. She said, well, you're not eating much of it. I said, Mom, Sarah, can I tell you something? She said, yeah, honey, you can tell me anything. I said, you know how much we love McDonald's, apple pies, and a sweet tea? She says, oh, yes, did you get one? I said, I did, and you won't believe what they put in my bag. I said, Mom, Sarah, I was really hungry. Stopped by McDonald's, got two apple pies and a sweet tea, and ordered some chicken and ate it. i was just not that hungry. She had this look come on her face, and, I said, Mom, sir, are you disappointed in me? She said, no, honey, I'm not disappointed. I said, what is it? She said, I'm just confused. I said, well, what are you confused about? She said, you tell me that my fried chicken is the best fried chicken on the planet. I said, Mom, Sarah, it's true. It is. She says, then why on earth would you stop and get some fake fried chicken if you knew if you just waited for just a second, you could get the real thing right here? And it was in that moment that God just spoke to me as I was sitting there preparing for, this, for, this, for, fu- for the funeral for my grandmother. Like, like, as she said that to me in the moment, it didn't really register, but, but then when I was preparing for that sermon, it, it really did register with me, like, how long are we going to go limiting two different opinions? If God is God, then follow him. But if we're God, then we should just serve ourselves. What she was saying is, how, why on earth, when you know you have the real thing, if you'll just wait just a second, you can feast on the real thing, why would you try to tide yourself over with some of the fake stuff? And that's exactly what God's asking you and me as we try to satisfy our own desires, as we try to serve the God of ourself. He goes, why on earth would you snack on the, the fake things of this world if you wait just a moment? Our life is but a vapor here today and gone tomorrow. If you wait just a moment, you can feast on the banquet table of righteousness I have for you in heaven. And that's what he's asking. That's what, that's what Elijah's asking the, uh, the prophets of Baal. How long are you going to limp in between two different opinions? If God is God, follow him. And if Baal's God, then follow him. And that's the same challenge I posed to you this morning. How long are you going to limp him between two different opinions? If God is God, then follow him. But if you're God, then you should just follow yourself. And he goes on to say this. And the people did not answer him a word, the end of verse 21. And the people did not answer him a word. Why? Because there was no answer. And when God confronted me with this truth, I didn't have an answer either. God, I don't know why I continue to, sell, to, to serve myself. I don't know why I continue to serve the God of my self-pleasure. I don't know why I continue to do that when you have made clear to me, so clear to me, that you satisfy every desire, that you are the author of my salvation. You knit me together in my mother's womb. You know my desires. And you desire to fulfill them every single day for me. And, and I need to stop snacking on the things of this world when I got the real thing waiting for me in heaven. And then Elijah said to his people, verse 22, I, even I, only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. And so here's what he's doing. He's painting the picture for them to understand that I am Elijah and I'm one person. There's 450 prophets that oppose me. So here's what I want to do. Why don't we, uh, why don't we build an altar? Let's build an altar He says, let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I'll prepare the other bull, the one that you guys didn't think was worthy, the one that you guys didn't want, the one that you guys set aside. I'll prepare that one, I'll cut it to pieces, and I'll I'll put it on the wood, and I'll, I'll put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I'll call upon the name of the Lord, and whoever answers by fire, that's the real God. How about that? Let's just do that. Whoever can answer this prayer, let's just do that. And the people said, yeah, it sounds good, good idea, let's do that. And then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves, this is verse 25, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first for your many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. So here's what Elijah does. He gives them, he gives them no out. He gives them, he gives them the best bull, the best altar, the first choice in everything. Why does he do that? Because Elijah is so confident that his God is going to answer, even if it's not the best bull, even if it's not the best altar, he knows for sure that God's going to answer. Why? How can he speak so confidently about what God's going to do? Because we've got a whole chapter in chapter 17 of God answering whatever he told Elijah he was going to do. Elijah has so much history with God that he can speak so confidently about what God's going to do in his life. It's just like if I told you to leave here today and you go to lunch, you should go to Red Lobster and eat the cheesy biscuits. I'm not telling you that just like as an idea or a suggestion. I'm telling you that because I've done it a lot of times and I know that they're really good. I'm speaking from experience, right? And Elijah's speaking from experience. He's going, dude, I've got confidence in my God. You can have the best of everything and I will show you that my God is real. And so what Elijah tells us is authentic believers were confronted with a choice and we got to cry out with confidence. You see, Joel was finally confronted with the idea that he had to confidently and boldly go before the Lord and do whatever he asked him to do. And the reality is, is for many of us, if we wouldn't have that confidence to cry out with, maybe just maybe we don't have the history with God that we say we do. In a room this size, there's bound to be thousands of years, collectively, of history with God. So why are we calling out confidently? Why aren't we crying out confidently about what God's going to do in our life? And so they take the best bull and put it on the altar and it says, then they cry out to Baal, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them. This is my favorite part. This is where, like, I know Elijah's got the spiritual gift of sarcasm, and I love it. He says, cry aloud for he is a God. Either he is musing or maybe he's relieving himself. Yeah, you guys know what that means. Or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Oh, did he not answer? Man, he's probably on vacation. Sleeping maybe, I don't know. I just see, it's just awesome, I love it. And they cried aloud and cut themselves. They got so desperate for their fake God to answer that they cut themselves. Maybe if we're dying here, maybe if we're dying, maybe he'll answer. And you know what's crazy about this? We read this and go, man, those, they're morons. But is that not what we do every day? We go around every day figuratively killing ourselves, trying to do it on our own. When all God wants us to do is come back to our first love, recognize that he is supreme in our life, that he is the author and perfecter of our faith. And here we are doing, trying to do it on our own, trying to serve the God of ourself. And it says, no one answered, no one paid attention. Verse 30, then Elijah said to the people, come near to me. And the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of tribes of Israel. And he made a trench about the altar. As great as would contain two sheaths of seed. 15 liters, basically. Verse 33, and he put the wood in order and cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water. You guys know this part of the story. And pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. Now, why is that significant? He, he says, fill four jars with water, pour it on the wood. Why is it significant? What has the wood not had in, in a little over three years? It, it hadn't had any water, hadn't had any moisture. So, so what does that mean? that it's going to do what to the water? Soak it up. So he poured so much water that not only did all the sticks soak up the water, but they soaked it to the point of saturation. They couldn't hold any more water. They, They literally were filled with water, and so much so that it filled the trench around the altar. So he's got so much water that the the logs are consumed by water and the trench is consumed by water. Uh, Does that seem like, I mean, according to Smokey the Bear, that's exactly what we should do to put out a forest fire, right? Is Smokey still a thing? Okay. That's what we should do to put out the forest fire. Not to to start one. Who is this crazy guy? Why Why would we fill this up? That's crazy talk. Why would you ever do that? You see, what Elijah tells us is that if we're going to be authentic believers, we're going to follow Christ into into wherever he's going to lead us, it's going to call us to be confronted with a choice. We're going to have to cry out with confidence. And point number three, we've got to know the call might seem crazy. The reality is, is that the team is here in eight weeks. Some of you, after hearing Joel and Melanie's story, you're terrified. God may ask you to do something that seems crazy. I mean, could confess a, a sin of adultery to your wife who you've been in this sin for over a decade. Seems crazy. But yet they would say their marriage is stronger today than it ever has been. Because, the, listen, things, things that God's asked us to do doesn't always make sense to us. The call might seem crazy. I mean, just look in Scripture. Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 4. Lay on your left side 390 days. Okay, that's cool. 390 days on the left side. Cool. Now roll over and lay on your right for 40 more. What? Or, or what about the story of Hosea? You guys know the story of Hosea? Hosea prayed for a wife forever. You guys know that? Prayed for a wife and God came to him. Hey, Hosea, I'm going to give you a wife. Awesome. Man, thank you, God. I've been praying for this for a long time. Cool. What's her name? Is it like Stephanie, Julie, Chelsea? Something beautiful like that? Gomer. Oh, Okay. Oh, all right, well, I'll give her a nickname or something. That'd be cool. What's, what's she do, God? What, what's she, she, she's like a, she got a heart for you, doesn't she? Uh, she's a uh, prostitute. Oh, well, what do you want me to do? Well, I want you to, to buy her into prostitution, and then guess what's going to happen? She's going to leave you. You're going to have to sell everything that you've got to go buy her back out again. What? It's crazy. It's crazy. Abraham, yeah. Hey, what have you prayed for forever? A son, a great lineage, awesome. Here's an angel, I'm gonna send an angel to you to tell you that hey, you need to go sacrifice your son. What? But Abraham didn't hit the snooze button. In Genesis 22, it records that he rose early the next day to go sacrifice his son. Why? The call seems crazy. There's a great lineage that God promised Abraham and now he's wanting to kill, us, to kill that son? That doesn't make any sense. But God provided a substitutionary sacrifice in the form of a ram caught in a thicket, which, oh, by the way, was a precursor to the fact that, that the sacrifice for us was going to be caught in a, in a crown of thorns also. It was on the same mountain range. I could go on and on. But here's the call of God is going to seem crazy in our life. And for some of you seated in this room this morning, you say, my pastors are crazy. Think we're going to meet here for eight days? We're going to do this for eight days. The call of God is going to be crazy. We know the call might seem crazy, but here's the reality. It will make a whole lot of disciples. The call of God on your life may be crazy, but obedience to the call of God will make a whole lot of disciples. You see, we do things to make it easier for ourselves, but sometimes that just makes it harder for God to receive the glory. Think about Elijah. If he hadn't poured all that water on there, they could have come up with some excuse. But when he poured all that water on there, no human could light that on fire, right? Only God. And yet we'll try to make it the easy way for us. Why? So that it can be easier. But what if God just desires to make glory? There's nothing easy about what Joel did that day. There's nothing easy about what Melanie confessed to Joel either. But the reality is that the only person that can receive glory from their confessions to each other is God himself. That's it. And so I challenge you, I challenge you, that even though you think your pastors are crazy, think that it's eight days, man, I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I can sit here for eight days. That's, that's crazy. Just know the call might seem crazy, but maybe, just maybe, God's going to call you to do something that you would never even imagine yourself doing. First time I ever spoke in front of people, college class, sweat through the paper I was, had my notes on. Failed that one. Several years later, God called me to do this for a living. Doesn't make any sense. I'm just telling you, the call of God might seem crazy, but as authentic believers, we know we're confronted with a choice. We know that we must cry out with confidence, having a lot of history with God, and we know the call might seem crazy. And So I would challenge you all to accept the call of God, to be here October 21st to the 29th, right here in this room, and just go, hey, God, Show me what's up. Be here. Show up, God, in ways that I've never seen. And I challenge you to see exactly what God does in your life. Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we're so grateful for you. Thank you so much for the sweet people of Keystone this morning for just allowing your word to come forth from a crazy dude from the south. And so I just pray, God, that you can just you would just move in our midst. You would just speak. To us in these days leading up, I pray that we would seek your face in prayer. God, I pray that you would prepare our hearts for what's crazy. God, may we pray into that, God. That what, may, may there be some people in this room that would pray into that. God, that, that, that whatever crazy thing you're going to call me to, God, may I have the courage to say yes. God, because you're always going to be there, walking every step of the way with us. And so, God, I pray for what's going to happen in this worship center eight weeks from today, what's going to begin in this worship center eight weeks from today. God's it's going to look nothing like what's going on this morning. It's going to be different. There's going to be a bunch of college kids here that nobody knows. And So, God, I pray that you would just move in our midst in spite of the differences, Lord. God, we love you, and I thank you. It's your holy name. Amen.